heavy with like 27 chapters and he was carrying this box of them and pulled his back today. So that's why I'm kind of preached. It could have been 10 chapters, but no, it had to be 27, big, thick, heavy book. Um, so I appreciate it. Uh, you guys putting this table up for me. Uh, just pardon me as I kind of lean through it. Uh, interestingly enough, the name of the sermon this week is called Joyful Suffering. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, it's just part one of two. <laughs> so I think God has something in store for me this next week. So um, just in the way of introduction, by the way, the Lord's table later on today uh, as at the end is, is very appropriate uh, for this passage of Scripture. But do you ever struggle in your faith with doubt about whether this Jesus thing is legit? Is, is this promise of heaven and eternal life real? Is the promise of eternity with God worthy of all these sacrifices that Scripture says that we're supposed to make? Like picking up our cross daily to follow Him? Is it really worth all the things that Jesus says must take place if we're going to be a true disciple? What if there was a way that we could be reassured, even in moments of doubt, that our Jesus is in fact reliable? Wouldn't that be great? What if, though, <laughs> that assurance is tied to real suffering? Not suffering because of sin, but suffering because we follow Jesus. And what if, what if struggling with doubt is directly tied to just how well we handle that suffering when it comes? And then when you hear Paul or Peter or Jesus say that we're supposed to rejoice in suffering, let's be honest, doesn't it kind of sound ridiculous? I mean, of course, our spiritual, you know, oh, yes, rejoice in suffering. But inside, like, what? Does that mean that we have to be some sort of super spiritual person that when suffering comes, we're going to be able to handle it in a way that's just like really amazing? I mean, it's a great idea to rejoice in suffering, but humanly, is it even practical? And, and another question, this is a lot of questions I know, which would you prefer? Earthly comfort, earthly comfort, but with severe doubt, or suffering on earth with great assurance God is reliable. Which one would you pick? Well, Pastor Joe, does it have to be one or the other? Well, yes, for the sake of the sermon, it must be one or the other. <laughs> Nothing in the middle. <laughs> How about suffering on Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, everything's good. <laughs> would you be willing to suffer as a Christian, in exchange for being confident when doubt creeps in? Would you be willing to endure suffering that would, in fact, verify that this follow Jesus and pick up your cross daily stuff is actually worth it? And then the last question, have any of us really actually suffered in America because of Jesus? I mean, and if you did... If you haven't yet, and if you did, how confident are you you'd be able to handle it? Let's look at the passage today in 1 Peter chapter 4, 12-16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. By the way, 
he says that, but we're always somehow surprised, aren't we? <laughs> Where did this come from? As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. His glory is revealed as a future promise, by the way. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but yet let him glorify God in that name. There's some really cool, well, as I say cool, interesting history about this passage today. I've entitled this section, Suffering to Come. So I want to give you a little bit of insight into the apostolic suffering that has taken place to the 30 years from the cross up to this point. Peter wrote this passage in Peter almost exactly 30 years after probably the worst day of his earthly life. You know what that day was? We actually preached about it in Mark. What is something about roosters? What was the name of it? Something, right? Remember when the rooster crowed? He denied Jesus. And then he went through, after the denial of Jesus, he saw the death of his Jesus and the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It was the worst day of his life. Yet Jesus had predicted his suffering, and he predicted the suffering of the disciples, which, of course, they all doubted. No way, Jesus. Remember, we went through this in the Gospel of Mark. They never seemed to get it. Jesus, you're not going to die. That's ridiculous. You're Messiah. But then they saw him die. But then he also said he would be resurrected, and they doubted that as well. But they saw him resurrected. But then there was a moment in between the cross and what was probably their greatest moment was Acts chapter 2, where they were preaching on the southern steps of the temple about 90 days after all this happened. Between them, between them, there was 90 days. What happened in between there? What we see happening is at Pentecost, the scripture says the Holy Spirit rested upon them. Isn't it interesting? Peter uses the same language. The Holy Spirit rested upon them with power, gave them courage, and after that day, nothing could stop them. From Acts 2 on, the disciples were courageous. They were risking everything for the gospel, rejoicing in suffering even to death. And since that day, Peter and the apostles have seen it all in those 30 years, suffering, beating, even friends who died preaching like Stephen. Yet they faithfully preached the full gospel message of the cross, and Jesus' prophetic warnings in Mark 13 about how Jerusalem and the temple would be judged. Look, the disciples weren't perfect in that 30 years. They certainly made plenty of mistakes. They had conflict with each other especially. But in the end, they persevered, persevered everything the enemy could throw at them. Why? Because they had confidence in Jesus. Because everything Jesus said would happen did Yet they learned the hard way through suffering that Jesus was, in fact, reliable. And now we see Peter saying, look, this suffering you're going through with Nero, it is just getting started. Now Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter, persecution is going to get worse. Expect it. And when it happens, don't be surprised by it. And this proved to be a correct 
prediction as well. Peter warned them that they needed to prepare for the coming persecution they would face by learning how to love one another relentlessly, the same message we saw in the book of Philippians that Paul gives to his readers. Peter says, for the church to thrive, you must create a legacy, a habit of love, loyalty, and unity that you will pass on to the next seven generations. Expect it. When it happens, recognize it that it's because of Jesus. Feel privileged that you can suffer because of your Jesus. And look what happens over the next 200 years. For the next two centuries, the church becomes, verifiably speaking, the most hated sect throughout the Roman Empire. The church becomes a massive institutional target of slander and cultural, political, society, and systematic persecution. I'm going to read you a quote from a book by a guy named Dr. H.B. Workman. The name of the book is Persecution in the Early Church. It's a history book. It's a church history book. He starts off, for 200 years, Christians were branded as anarchists and hated. To become a Christian meant joining a despised, persecuted sect, identifying with popular prejudice the possibility of imprisonment and death at any moment. During those 200 years, followers of Christ had to be prepared to pay with his liberty and his life. The mere profession of Christianity was itself considered a crime. Identifying with the name Christian itself often meant the rack. You've seen medieval kind of movies, you know what the rack is. Or the blazing shirt of pitch. Yes, that's what it sounds like, covered in tar and then burned. It could mean the lion, the panther, or in the case of Christian maidens, an infamy far worse than death. For the first 230 years of our church history, all they knew was persecution. Think about this, 230 years, that's just about as long as America has been around. That's how long the church suffered. They never knew a moment of peace from their inception at Acts chapter 2 until 200 years later with the Emperor Constantine. Look at the theological part of this passage, Suffering 101. You know, as I've preached through this epistle of Paul and Peter and John, all these different books we've gone through as a church at Grace Life, there's a consistent apostolic preaching that is so clear to me that it wasn't before until I started preaching 1 Peter and somehow it all clicked for me. After early conflict, these apostles intentionally, brilliantly coordinated their apostolic message with exactly what Jesus taught them. And each one of them, all of them, had the same message, and it always contained these elements, the full gospel being the cross and the resurrection, including the story of Noah, and then Jesus' prophecies in Mark 13 about the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple 70 years, or 40 years later in 70 AD. And then he also included this here warning to expect suffering and rejoice when it comes. Every one of them. They never, 
preach without the other three things connected to it. It's just fascinating. This was intentional. It was brilliant. It was strategic. It was God-inspired. So they say, don't be shocked. Look what James says in James chapter 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. You know, James doesn't wait till chapter 3 to spring that on you. He does it in verse 2. There's a reason. You remember we preached through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Remember this verse from 1st John chapter 3? Count it all joy. Or do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John said that. So that's Peter, or that's Paul, Peter and John, uh, James, I'm sorry, James and Paul. And now we see Paul writing to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, I could have listed 20 more verses to you that basically said the same thing. Just trust me, they all said it. And even though Jesus said, don't be surprised, for some reason we always are, I mentioned that earlier. Let me explain to you, when Peter starts off by saying these fiery trials, the word fiery, it doesn't talk about the intensity of suffering, although we know we read in that description it would be intense, certainly. Actually, fiery trials is a preaching tool. It is, a, it is an image. It is an analogy of how fire would purify precious metals. So would these sufferings purify their faith. More on this next week, which is just a fascinating passage that ties into the wheat and the tares and being purified. It's just an amazing passage. But Peter also warns, listen, don't confuse this type of suffering with shameful suffering. He clarifies, don't confuse righteous suffering with suffering you actually deserve. Suffering that is shameful. And in reality, if we would be honest, often most of our suffering is usually a result of our own sinfulness. When we put ourselves before God and others. And Peter lists some of the causes in today's passage of shameful suffering. Here he lists them, ready? And you may think you're okay with these, but let me just give you some details. First of all, he says, if you're, if you're suffering because of murder, you know, don't say that's because of righteousness. Well, duh, right? We'll get into that. If you're suffering because of thievery, don't say that that's because you're righteous, because it's not. Or meddling, or evildoers. So how is this kind of related to a church? Of course, these churches aren't full of murderers, right? And thieves and meddling evildoers. Well, actually, these are the same things Peter was warning them about in the first three chapters. Did you know the zealots? Remember we talked about the zealots? Did you know they would kill Roman soldiers in the name of righteousness? That's murder. When they would make excuses to not pay taxes, that's thievery. Breaking up. Unequal marriages between a person who is a believer and an unbeliever, saying, oh, you should leave him or you should leave her. Meddlers. Slaves rebelling against their masters in the name of equality within the church. Did you know in Rome, all four of these things, killing Roman soldiers, not paying taxes, trying to break up a marriage, rebelling against masters, they're all punishable by death. 
Peter says, if you suffer because you think you were doing something righteous, but it was one of those things I warned you about in chapters one through three, uh-uh, that's your own fault. That's shamefulness. But if you suffer for goodness, gentleness, kindness, proclaiming the gospel, that's when the suffering is something you can rejoice. He also includes evildoers. You know what the evildoers is a reference to? The shameful immoral behavior he warned them about in the previous couple of verses. Here's what Paul said. Obey your government, whether you like it or not. Remember, their government was far worse than anything we think we might have had now or in the last four years. So no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you don't have an excuse. Honor your masters. Be zealous for good. Seek peace so you can avoid suffering the shameful consequences of your behavior. But then there's this fascinating word, rejoice. I can't remember if I've broken this down in here before and deep in, but we're going to go into a deep dive here. This word rejoying is just, I've made it up myself. (laughs) But you'll see where I get it from. Why would Peter say rejoice over these coming fiery trials? I mean, wouldn't it be easier for Peter to say rejoice because blessings are coming? Wouldn't that be better? (laughs) Rejoice because the prosperity gospel is real. No, he doesn't say that. Here's the Greek word for rejoice. Hyro. A state of calm. Being calm, joyful, glad in any circumstance. The root word for hiero is the word hara, joy. Does this sound familiar? A supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God. So in reality, rejoicing is just rejoying. Joying over and over and over again. Peter says rejoying is the work of the spirit that is resting upon them. The same spirit that rested upon the apostles at Pentecost. The same spirit is in them. And when they do suffer, everything the apostles preached for 30 years that Jesus predicted in Mark 13, they will, the apostles, for example, be able to rejoice. And then imagine first century believers, right? They've heard these apostles preaching this this consolidated, predictable message for 30 years, three decades, seven generations. And it all happens, including the predicted suffering. Wow. Our Jesus is reliable. The apostles were right. And this is really hard. But you know what? We have no choice but to be all in. There's no other way to go because Jesus is real. What he says is true. He is reliable. I think I'm just going to wait on the rest of his promises to come true. More on that later. Rejoying. And how did this rejoying, this this joy, this supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else, recurring over and over again, rejoicing, rejoying, how did it manifest itself in their life? It inspired a new way of living, foreign foreign to everyone around them. Remember, Peter talked about that a couple of chapters earlier. Rejoying created a people 
known for surprising generosity. Unbelievable personal sacrifice for their movement. It created unity and courageous faithfulness. And it manifested itself in actions like these. For the first time in history, a group goes out onto the hillsides outside of cities and rescues abandoned, discarded babies. No one had ever done that before. An orphanage, it was a foreign idea. The Christians in the first century were the first ones to do it because of rejoicing. They began to care for the sick and dying that were cast out of the city for fear of contagion. They would go into the contagion and care for them and love them and win them over to the gospel with the love of Christ. They began to care for and provide for the outcast and the poor. When everybody else saw them as a burden, you know what else they did? They began to refine, redefine a code of morality and what marriage was really supposed to look like. All of this was crazy. It was brand new. It was a result of rejoining, and the rest of the world mocked them for it. This is a silly, ridiculous waste of your time and your talent and your treasure. You Christians, and that was a derogatory term, you Christians are idiots. Your Savior has been dead for 30, 40 years. What are you doing? What they were doing was living out, rejoicing, rejoicing. Let's look at the personal section. Are you ready to rejoice? So this was the sermon preview this week. <clears throat> Is your daily cross heavy enough to cause you to rejoice? Or just barely heavy enough to help you feel religious? Just think about that for a minute. You know, when Jesus said to pick up your cross and follow him daily... He did not intend that to be a metaphor to compare to simply putting on a jacket or just being willing to get your lazy butt up and come to church on a Sunday. <laughs> True, rejoying disciples of Jesus will always go way further than any of that. You know, some of us here aren't ready to suffer for Jesus. Heck, some of us won't even allow a daily cross to inconvenience us or make us a little tired. But Jesus was clear. I mean, this, this cannot be debated here. He was clear following him should cost you something. And if it doesn't, then you probably aren't really following him like you think you are. Philippians 3.10 and 11. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, I might, that, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I embrace the promise of his suffering so I can embrace the promise of his eternal life. Look, I don't really want suffering. But I find, my personal life, the more comfortable I am in this world, the less committed I become to the kingdom of heaven. My 
acceptable list of sacrifices begins to shrink because my comfort is being enjoyed. You know, but the spirit man inside of me sort of wishes I could experience, under my close supervision, of course, (laughs) just a little of what the apostles of the first century church did. Why would I ask for that? Why would I want that? Well, here's why. Because when they suffered, they saw it as confirmation that the words of Jesus, way back in Mark 13 and about the cross, were reliable and trustworthy. Wow, it came true. Holy moly. And while their rejoicing, rejoicing was tied to the fulfillment of Mark 13, right, when they saw that, This spiritual truth still applies to us in the 21st century as we wait for his promise of a return. Listen, suffering in the Christian life isn't about God bringing the hammer down. It's what Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John, and James said would happen. When Jesus said it would happen, it did. And even though it made life hard for them, it was a cause for the early church to constantly rejoice or rejoy. And you know, that same spirit that rested upon the apostles and that rested upon the first century church rests upon us. We shouldn't be surprised. And when it happens, we will be empowered and we will be inspired to endure suffering faithfully. When that same spirit that rests upon us, when we suffer, it will draw us closer to the Father. We won't be surprised by that either. You know, but when suffering causes you to get angry with God, instead of running to Him, you've got a severe spiritual problem you need to look at. Let me say it again. When suffering causes you to get angry with God instead of running to Him, you've got a severe spiritual problem you need to look at. It's a sign the Spirit that rested upon the apostles and Peter's readers may not be resting upon you. But if the time came, you might think you would be afraid to suffer for the cause of Christ, but if the Spirit rests upon you, I know you wouldn't be. I can tell you personally in the darkest moments of my life, in those darkest moments, I was more assured, more confident, and closer to my Jesus than I ever was when I was comfortable. That's a fact. Some of you have your own stories of your darkest moments in life about how they confirmed that you identified with your Jesus. Those moments amid fiery trial, you were somehow able to rejoy yourself rather than run. And do you know why? Because rejoicing isn't a result of some personal inner spiritual strength. We don't get the credit for rejoicing. It's a spirit of God thing, not a try-hard human thing. It's a sovereignty of God issue. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 14, 2 and 3. I love this promise. It's a reliable one. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Our rejoicing and suffering is proof that the Spirit rests upon us, comforting us, teaching us that our Jesus is reliable. He is trustworthy. Therefore, we know this promise from Jesus, this one we just read, is also trustworthy. It becomes our hope. It becomes our joy. It is our supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. That's why Jesus taught us to observe the Lord's table together. A unified, supernatural rejoying over the sufferings of our Jesus. We are saying together, we remember the sufferings of our Lord and all his trustworthy promises that go with it. We are saying together, we recognize our sinfulness and we want to be transformed more than anything else. We desperately want it. We want to be just like our Jesus. We are also saying together, we will rejoice if we are persecuted because we have been inspired to identify with him no matter what. We are also saying together, we believe the Spirit is resting upon us and it will verify that our faith is genuine and our faith will empower us to endure suffering. We are also saying together, we remember the words of Jesus. We proclaim his promises are worthy of any daily cross we might be required to pick up to follow him. We are saying together, we will continue to relentlessly proclaim, hear that word, proclaim his promises to all those who God brings into our lives. And the last thing we are saying together, we may not always be up for this, but even when we fail, our intention is to rejoy once again together. That's why we're celebrating the Lord's table this morning. We start off 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. By the way, Paul wasn't there for the first Lord's table, remember? He was taught. And look what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. As we eat that symbolic bread, you know what we're doing? We are remembering the cross, and we are rejoicing. But Paul wasn't done. I 
I still hear some crumpling, so I'll wait. (laughs) In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, there's that word, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look what the next word is, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what we were just doing there with the cup? We are remembering and we are rejoicing. My church family, this is an important time when we do the Lord's table. This is why we make it an event that we warn you about. Warn, that's not the right word. We remind you. (laughs) We remind you about two weeks ahead of time because we want it to become an opportunity to come together and say all those things together, remembering the cross and rejoicing. Because it's that rejoicing, the result of the Spirit resting upon us, that helps us create a life that looks nothing like the world around us. Heavenly Father, we're just being real here. We're not thrilled about suffering. But we also know that if we ever do have the opportunity to suffer for your sake, we can remember that these were things you said would happen. And if those are real, so are your promises of eternity and redemption and restoration. Dear Jesus, We have just become, particularly in this country, so soft as Christians. The things that we think are suffering really are not. Our crosses that we think we're picking up, they're not really that heavy. Lord, and I'm I'm careful when I pray this because, you know, I don't want anybody to get mad at me, but (laughs) Lord, if we need to go through some suffering worthy of rejoicing. Maybe that's exactly what we need so that our faith can be reassured so we can live as though we are supposed to live. People who are constantly proclaiming, living with integrity, an industry, people zealous for good, ready at any moment, and relentlessly pursuing peace and unity. Help us to abandon those things in the world that are screaming for our attention so that we can rejoice in your presence, that we can be satisfied with the supernatural presence in in our lives over anything else. 
And we ask this today because we are remembering the cross, remembering the suffering. And in that suffering, we identify that the suffering was because of our own sin. And we rejoice that you were willing to do that, but not just that, but you were able to conquer the grave so that we might live. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, go this week and rejoy as much as you can. See you next week.